Welcome to Newborn News, a podcast where we discuss educational topics for medical professionals who care for newborns. I'm your host, Dr. Nita Goley, a pediatrician in the UT Southwestern Newborn Nursery. Welcome back to the podcast. In today's episode, we will be discussing spinal muscular atrophy, or SMA. We are recording remotely due to the ongoing COVID pandemic. We are joined today by Dr. Diana Castro, Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Neurology at UT Southwestern and Children's Health Dallas. Hi, Dr. Castro. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, how are you? Thank you for inviting me. So spinal muscular atrophy is an inherited lower motor neuron disorder, which if left untreated can lead to progressive muscle weakness, morbidity, and mortality associated with that. Now and on the horizon, we have lots of exciting new technologies to both screen for and treat this disease. So today, we'll discuss the pathophysiology, diagnosis, and management of this disorder. Dr. Castro, could you please start by helping us localize the lesion, so to speak, in neurology terms? Sure. So spinal muscular atrophy, uh, the big problem with the disease, it's, it's concentrated in the anterior horn cell located in the spinal cord. The anterior horn cell is from the, where the nerves, the motor nerves are going to come out. So the anterior horn cell gets affected, the nerve gets affected, and subsequently you're going to have also problems with the nerve muscular junction on the muscle. But the main issue, it's going to be in the spinal cord. So what is the etiology? How is it inherited? This is inheriting an autosomic recessive uh, pattern. So it's 25% chance for each pregnancy. What we have seen actually is with more experience and more patients that we have, it almost looks like after you have had one kid with SMA, even though it's autosomic recessive and even though it should be 25%, it's almost like it gets into a dominant pattern. So we have families with three, four kids with SMA. The problem, the, the, really the theology is the lack of a protein called survival motor neuron. This protein is produced by a gene called SMN. The SMN is duplicated in our body. So we have SMN1 and SMN2. Everybody has those two, humans. Uh, but the problem in these patients is that they don't have the main gene that is SMN1. So because they lack the main gene, they really depend only on the backup copy in the SMN2 gene. So does SMN2 have to be mutated as well for the full manifestations of SMA to present? Not really. That's a very good question. No. The problem is that SMN1 produces 100% of the protein because when you go from, when you do translation, transduction, and the protein gets formed, it forms as a full length 100% protein for the SMN1. But the SMN2, most of the times, has a natural mutation where it causes a C to T transition in exon 7. And this is natural, meaning it happens in all of us. And so for that reason, it only produces 10% of full-length protein. The other 90% is useless, right? But again, because we have SMN1, we don't depend on the, on the backup SMN2, really. But for these patients, they do depend on the SMN2. That's the only thing they have to work with. So if they, have, uh, they only have this SMN2 gene, depending on how many copies of that gene they have, it will 
correlate pretty well with the phenotype. So if you have only two SMN2 copies, you're going to have most likely a more severe patient, a more severe presentation, compared to if you have four copies of SMN2, you're going to have probably more a patient uh, with type 3, a patient that is able to walk and is able to do other things. Okay. So let's get into that. What are the different classifications of SMA? So I'll start saying that the classification is going to have to start changing, and we're working on that because, as you know, now we have therapies that are changing the landscape completely. So at this moment right now, the classification that we still use, it is determined by two factors. One, when did the patient start having symptoms? At what age? And two, what is the maximum motor function the patient reached? So if you have a a baby that's having symptoms less than six months of age, and the baby's never able to sit independently or to do anything else, that's a type one. And usually those babies have two copies of SMN2. So that's a good correlation. Then you have the type two. Type two kids usually present between six to 18 months of age. They are able to seed, but they cannot walk. And usually those patients have three copies of SMN2. Then you have a type three who is older than 18 months of age, who is able to walk independently. And usually those patients will have between three to four copies of SMN. There is a type four that presents in 20s and 30s, but obviously I don't see those patients. And then there is a type zero that is a type that in neonatology, neonatologists may see because these are kids that are born completely, completely weak, hypotonic, with arterial palsies, with difficulties feeding and difficulties breathing right after they are born. And they usually will have only one copy of SMN2. And can you actually explain us a little bit, what exactly does the SMN protein do? What is its role? So the, the survival motor neuron, as, as, it, as the name, maintains enteral horn cell function, right? It's what it helps them develop, what it helps them maintain them alive. And if your anterior horn cell is alive and it's working well, your motor nerves are going to work well. And if your nerve works well, the muscle will develop well. So it is it is a cascade. You know, before people used to think about spinal cladrophy as only affecting the anterior horn cell, but it really ended up affecting the whole pathway all the way down to muscle. So that's why these patients have very atrophic and very small nerves. They have problems in the neuromuscular junction, so they have fatigue related to their disease, and then their muscle doesn't develop or it gets atrophic with time. So to the name muscular atrophy, right? The muscle continues getting smaller and the muscle continues getting weaker and hypotonic. So it's really a condition that that will affect the whole, like I said, the whole pathway. Mm -hmm. So survival motor neurons, that's what it does, is really maintaining that anterior horn cell alive. Uh, These babies, if I can make a comment that Actually, we know that the process of those anterior horn cells, uh, the death of those anterior horn cells start happening between the second and the third trimester. Hmm. So changes are happening already when the baby is born. And for a type 1, that is why it's so important that the patients get treated within the first six weeks of life because that is the the time where you're going to have more uh, anterior horn cell death and obviously more weakness and more atrophy and more bulbar symptoms and so on. So for a type 1, it's extremely important to get them diagnosed early 
for that reason, because the changes are happening between the second and third trimester and continue happening for, for the first weeks of life. And in order to help get the diagnosis earlier, um, SMA was actually added to the National Recommended Universal Screening Panel for newborns in 2018. Texas plans to begin screening for SMA on the routine newborn metabolic screen, I believe, later this year in July of 2021 is what I've heard. Um, How will the screening be done? Yeah, so this was after a fight of all of us. I mean, specialists and and also family foundations trying to make them understand how important it was to diagnose these babies right away. There are some families who have had babies already with SMA, so when they get when they have a new pregnancy, they can do amniocentesis and the baby can get diagnosed in triuter, right? Whenever we diagnose somebody, we always test the mother and the father for their carrier status. Now with the newborn screening, that will be part as the you know, part of the regular newborn screening with the um, the dry blood spot. Uh, the results, we think that we're going to get it around the same time you get newborn screening results, so within the first days of life. Right after it's done, after the patient comes positive for, uh, or, or there's a possibility of this patient having SMA, we're going to have to do a confirmatory test. So we will be looking for the deletion of SMN1 because it's no, 95% of the patients will have a homozygous deletion of SMN1. And then we also will be looking at the copy number of SMN2 to kind of determine what's the phenotype that patient will have. So that, those are the first steps. There is something that is extremely, extremely important is that some patients, you're not going to be able to find them within that uh, first screening. So we're going to be able to catch 95% of the patients, but there is a 5% of patients that are going to be uh, lost that we're not going to be able to detect. So for those 5% of patients who are not detected on the newborn screen, um, how might we expect SMA to present when they're, you know, in the neonatal period, infants, or later in childhood? I know you mentioned earlier potentially delay in gross motor milestones, um, delay in walking, sitting, walking, things like that. So the presentation will be exactly the same as the deletion of the patients that have homozygous deletion. And, but with the caveat that there are some patients that may have, in one allele, they may have a deletion, and in the other allele, they may have a mutation. This is not, there is an, not a lot of papers about this, but we have been working with other universities to put cases together. We, we found patients that have a deletion on one side of the, of the gene and, and a mutation, and these patients may have a milder phenotype, so they present a little bit later. But if you have a patient with regular mutations and there are no modified mutations, because some patients may have also modified mutations that may cause the phenotype to be less aggressive, what you're going to see is a baby that is born completely normal. They, I always tell my residents, my fellows, it's the baby that you open the door and you have this beautiful face looking everywhere, completely awake and alert, with a body that does not correspond to the face. Like, it's a body that is going to be very low tone, with a lot of weakness, with hyporeflexia or areflexia. That's something that we have to be careful because obviously reflexes may still be present. Uh, but it is that discordant, it's, it's that face that does not go well with the body, let's say. Because, again, the face is not affected, so you have normal 
eye movements, you have normal facial expression. With time, you're going to have bulbar involvement, so difficulty speeding and breathing around three to four months of life. And with time, they're going to lose complete, obviously, uh, motor function of their extremities and their trunk. And also, later on, the face will be affected. But the face will be affected later on. It's not one of the first changes that you see. So I, I always say that if you find a baby that just does not correlate, like the face does not go well with the body, that's a baby that likely has spinal muscular atrophy. They do not have cognitive delays. They are actually quite bright little kids. And then why is there so much variation in the phenotype, even potentially among patients who have the same mutation? That's also a very good question. It's something that we're still working on because it is, like I say, there are a couple of mutations in the SMN1, I'm sorry, in the SMN2 gene that can make the phenotype less aggressive. That we know. There are two mutations that are described that can cause that the phenotype to be less aggressive. But then there is a lot of variation even between siblings. You have uh, siblings that are, one is type 3 and the other one is type 2, but without treatment, you know, without, and even before we start treating them. And why they have these variation in phenotypic expression, even though they have the same genetics. And that's something that we're still trying to understand. Because the genes that are around the SMN complex have been studied. There are another three genes that are part of the SMN complex but they haven't been able to find really a good correlation of any other mutation in any other of those genes that will cause the phenotype to be more severe or less severe. So it's something that we're still working on it. We don't have good biomarkers yet, and uh, that also is something that obviously is not helping us to to uh, understand what will be the response for treatment, for example. Right, that's, that's another point, but it's something important that we... We still have to work on. So there is a lot of work to, that needs to happen it's still in spinal muscular atrophy, even though we have three medications already, but we don't understand many things. Is there any clear understanding as well of why an autosomal recessive disease would potentially, like you mentioned, seem to have some sort of autosomal dominant penetrance in some families? No, really. No. Mm-hmm. There is, this is an observation, and it's something that all of my colleagues all of SMA experts in the country will tell you mm-hmm. that there is really not a good explanation why some families tend to have more kids after they have the first one. They, can, they have, it's almost like if it's a dominant in, in families. I have families, I had a family with six kids with SMA. Oh. I have families with three and four kids with SMA. So you will think that if it's a recessive condition, it shouldn't affect so many kids of the same couple, but, but it happens. So, Again, another thing that we still have to um, try to understand, there has to be something else. There has to be some other modifying genes that are, mm-hmm. you know, that are changing the phenotype somehow. But, but things are still not clear in that area. Interesting. So lots more research to be done. Hmm. Um, if SMA is suspected, either based on symptoms or newborn screen results, what is your initial evaluation? So if it is suspected, the first thing is to, I mean, if, if you got it through newborn screening, the first thing is sending the confirmation testing, right? That can be done STAT, STAT meaning 48 hours. So in 48 hours, we should have results to, to go ahead and start therapy. If the patient is, it is 
So at that point, obviously, the patient will be referred to us, to neurology, specifically to neuromuscular uh, physicians. But if if a pediatrician is seeing or an anatologist, any, you know, really any, any physician is seeing a patient that they think it is spinomuscular atrophy, uh, there is actually free testing that can be performed. So it's better to be on the safe side. If there is any question, it's just better to send it. It's sent to a company uh, that it is uh, sponsored by, by one of the pharmaceutical companies. So we get results really quick within three days, three to four days. But again, there is a stat also, there is a stat test that can be done. Once we have that, I think at that point, if you have that concern, it's much better give me a call or give us a call and let's start the process. Let's start moving on, you know, with the, with the scheduling, the clinic and so on. Because even while we get the confirmation, we can be working on other things. We can be looking at their lungs. We can be looking at, you know, their, their lung function. We can be looking at the feeding uh, capacity. We can start doing motor function testing. So there are a lot of things that we still have to do even before we get to the confirmation. So it will be much better to get them referred early. And that's something that I don't know if it's here in Texas, but um, and it's probably not. I think probably many other places that the referral time, it is, it's really prolonged. It takes months for these patients to get to our clinic. And every day with a spinal muscular atrophy matters in mm-hmm. function. It really matters. Mm-hmm. Every single day, it's a, it's a big deal for these babies not to get treated. Is the confirmatory testing, would that be like a fish for the SMN1 gene? Yeah, it will be looking at the SMN1, yes, but it also will tell you the copy number of SMN2. In the past, I mean, 10 years ago when I was doing this, we didn't, we used to do only SMN1, looking for the deletion or mutation in the gene. But now we do the gene copy, uh, the SMN2 copy number, because it is also important, but at the time we need to choose um, or we need to get therapy. The insurance companies have specific rules about who, you know, who can be treated really and who cannot. So some companies will not approve treatment for babies with one copy of SMN2. Mm-hmm. That will be the one that is the newborn kind of the uh, on, intrauteral onset. Those are the ones that are born with arthrograde poses and difficulty sitting and breathing right from the first day. So most companies will not cover treatment for those patients. One, because their prognosis is really, really poor, and two, because nothing has been done in terms of uh, research for those patients. So it is important to know the copy number. For us, if we are trying to order the test in the computer, is it something that, you know, if we type in SMN, it would show up in the electronic medical record or in the computer system? Or is it something that we have no. to go to their website it's to order? It's a miscellaneous send-out. It is a send-out, and it's sent to um, one of the companies that we use a lot. It's called Invite, that are, probably you know that company. And you send us SMN testing. You can just put SMN testing to Invite, and they know. Um, and then the other one, it is with Athena. And Athena has a 48-hour turnaround. So that's the stat. You can send SMN analysis stat to Athena also as a miscellaneous send-out because you're not going to find the order right away. Okay. And we have no financial disclosures, but just to, to say that those are the two tests that are available. 
Yeah, I don't have anything to do with those companies. So it's just that it is it is available, and I wish people will know that you know it's very easy, super easy. Just miscellaneous send out and send it a lavender tube, I believe, and then just you know put it in the mail and send it. It's it's a it's a test that will come back right away, quick. The Invita one will come back between three to four days. The Athena will come back in forty eight hours. Okay. And how would you recommend we, as either newborn nursery hospitalists or general pediatricians, counsel these families if we have the suspicion before they were able to see you in neurology? I think that, I mean, counseling, I would say, is to make them understand the importance of that if this is the diagnosis, we're really against time. We're really against the clock. So make them understand that this is something that they cannot hold on on. You know, many times you tell the families do something and they may take months to get to, to do the test you order. But in this case, we're not talking about months. We're talking really about days. So just the importance of pushing the system, getting their appointments, making sure if somebody's not calling them, making sure they get, you know, they call the clinic and, and they get a schedule and they get to be seen as soon as possible. And then the other part will be the genetic counseling because many times I have had families that were diagnosing the baby that is born, you know, like a newborn, and but the mom is pregnant already, or you know, like it is gonna, she's gonna get pregnant really soon, and just happened to us recently we diagnosed one, and the mom was just uh, recently pregnant. So the genetic counseling is important to let them know that there is a risk, and if both have carriers, the risk is really high in these cases. And then once they do make it to the appointment with you in neurology, what is your current standard of care for treatment? So if we talk first about standard of care, so standard of care for these patients go pretty much from head to toe. We we make sure that they don't, the feeding part is evaluated. So we do a video solid studying for the babies or for the patients. We do, uh, many times we do sleep studies when they get a little bit older or if they're going to start initiating BiPAP early. Uh, we do, uh, I do send them to cardiac evaluation, cardiac screening, even though these patients very rarely will have cardiac abnormalities. There was a paper, a review paper, they got 300 patients with SMA with all type of rhythm abnormalities and uh, structural abnormalities. So to me, I think it's important to send them to for screening. And then they get to see pulmonology, again, to look into the um, restrictive lung disease that they will develop. These patients cannot use their intercostal muscles. They don't have their intercostal muscles are extremely, extremely weak. So they only use their diaphragm to breathe. That's why they are belly breathers. So they have to be seen really quick because the progression is within, within weeks, sometimes months, months, two months that they will deteriorate, you know, in, in terms of the respiratory part. Then the other part, like I said, video solid study, but that comes to say if the patient doesn't pass this video solid study, do they need a G-tube? And many times G-tube comes with a nuisance to prevent the reflux. Um, we do the um, evaluation, like the motor function evaluation that is done by physical therapy and occupational therapy. We give them braces if they are needed. We give them hand cleans. Um, we help the families. For example, we don't recommend babies, little babies with SMA, to leave the newborn uh, unit in a regular car seat. You know, this is one of the things that 
that the, we, you know, people have to be informed about that. They have to live on a car bed or they have to live on one of those car seats that recline completely because you try to avoid putting them in that in that kind of position that is going to push their diaphragm and it's not going to let them breathe. So my PT and OT helped me with the, all of that area. Nutrition is a very important part of, of what we do. We do not recommend to have these patients above 25% of weight uh, because we don't want them to be too heavy, more sad, more, you know, more weight means more difficulties moving. Um, and then the other part is the orthopedic part, because with time they will develop scoliosis, they will develop contractures and so on. So I think that it's a lot of, a lot of pieces that were, you know, that, that were evaluated, a lot of organs that we evaluated in the clinic. And then once we get to treatment, what kind of treatments are currently used as mainstays? And then what kind of treatments are under development and investigation? So for treatment approved treatments, we have three of them. And I will start with the first one that was approved, was approved in December of 2016, and it's called Mucinersen or Spinarata. This is an intrathecal injection that is given every four months for the rest of their lives. At the beginning, I give them four doses in two months as a loading dose, and then after that, it will be every four months afterwards. Um, this medication is approved for all patients from newborn to adult, so it's, it's really for all types of SMA. The mechanism of action of that medication is working with the SMN2 gene that the patient has, because they don't have SMN1, we have to work with what we have, so in this case, SMN2 gene. So it modified the slicing of the SMN2 gene, making this exon 7 that it's kind of most of the time skip or not included to be included in the sequence and be able to produce more of the functional protein. So like they said at the beginning, these, these patients, even though they, they have this SMN2, this SMN2 is not functional because most of the time they skip that exon 7. So this medication will help including that exon 7 again in the sequence and, and increase those levels. It is a great medication. We have trials on all different ages, medic, uh, we have treated patients in the pre-symptomatic that we call less than six weeks of life, uh, symptomatic, all the way from six weeks of life to, in terms of trials, we have patients until 22 years of age, but because it is commercial, patients in all ages have been treated, uh, treated around the world. So we have a lot of experience with that one. Side effect profile is pretty good. I mean, it's mostly related to the lumbar function, not really to the medication. That's the first one. The second one that was approved was approved uh, in May of 2019. And this medication is called Solgensma. Solgensma or Onesemnogen. Solgensma is a gene transfer therapy and it's given IV and it's times one. So you receive it one time. And that's it. It is only approved for kids less than two years of age uh, because it is given in, intravenous. There was some study that was looking at intrathecal injection of this gene transfer therapy, but it's currently on hold because the animal models show that there could be some possible dorsal ganglia inflammation. So right now, the only thing we have approved is for less than two years of age, IV. How does it work? It is being transferred. So 
you're packing the SMN1 gene in an AAV9, and you're giving to the patient around, in around an hour. Um, the only problem for this one is that if the patient has AAV9 antibodies, they obviously we're not going to be able to use that as a, as a therapy because of the immunologic response. And we also have to start them on prednisone the day before of the infusion, and we keep them on prednisone for around three months. That's number two. And number three, the latest they want to prove was in August of 2020, and this is called Rizaplam or a Brisdi. And Rizaplam is an oral medication. So it's given by mouth or by G2, and it's given daily. It has a very similar mechanism of uh, nusinersen, of the first one I mentioned, because it modifies the splicing on the SMN2 gene. So it improves or increases the level of SMN protein. This is the newest one, but even though it's the newest one, there has been uh, research trials in around 500 people around the world. Uh, they have very good experience from two months up. So it's approved for babies two months and above. For babies two months uh, under, we cannot use Ristoplam yet because the trial is still in, in progress. So those are the options we have. Um, all of them are great. I think the point is, if all of them are great, the point is start them early. If you start early, you're going to get the best results. And when I say early, it is hopefully in the presymptomatic time, meaning the first six weeks of life. You were asking about investigational, and I can mention maybe one of them that we're doing at Children's that is um, it's called myostatin inhibitor, and it's an IV infusion given once a month. And what it's trying to do is trying to, if you inhibit myostatin, myostatin will allow, it will allow the muscle to grow. So it is, uh, it's not targeting exactly the SMN uh, gene, but it's targeting another area that is affected in this case, the muscle. And for our listeners, can you clarify what AAV9 is? Oh, yeah, it's an adenovirus. So it's actually, it's an inactivated virus that is in the family of the parvovirus. And this gene transfer has been used, AAV has been used for different types of uh, treatments. In this case, AAV9 is the one that is used for SMA. And we're doing research using another type of AAV. Um, there has been AAV8 or AAVRH74 for Duchenne muscular dystrophy, for example. So it's just different strands of these parvovirus. And can you speak to the cost of these medications? Yes, that's that's where the biggest problem is. It's usually the cost is it is it's extremely high. Um Nusinersen it's $125,000 per vial. So the first like I said you need four doses in the first two months and then one every four months. So you can make, you know, the numbers that's a lot of money because it's the rest of your life. The second one, the one that is approved for less than 2 years, it's all Gensma. It's 2.2 million. It's times one, but still, that's a lot of money. And then the last one, Rizaplam or Abrisi, the one that is given oral, it is around 350,000 a year uh, per patient. These are covered by the insurance. And, you know, it is a lot of money. But when you start thinking about the number of hospitalizations for these patients without treatment that we had before, uh, the number of ICU stays, the equipment that is needed, the nursing, and everything else that is all the cost that goes around a patient with spinal muscular atrophy, um, you know, it's, 
in my, I think it's worth it. Obviously, my patients are worth it, and and the expense is worth it. But it is a lot of money still. I think that hopefully one day we'll have more uh, reasonable prices, you know, for these medications. Mm. Absolutely, and then. With appropriate treatment, early treatment, hopefully caught in the pre-symptomatic period, what is the long-term prognosis for children with SMA? So it depends. It depends really the time of treatment. You have we have studies for nisinersen in pre-symptomatic babies less than six weeks of age, and we have studies in pre-symptomatic babies treated with. Um, the vex- the Tolgensma medication, the gene transfer therapy, and the prognosis for those babies is amazing. These kids are holding their heads, sitting, standing, walking, some of them running. They Most of them don't require any um, respiratory support or any gastrostomy tube or anything else. So it is amazing. The, the type of response that we see is really amazing for both medications. Again, if you use them less than six weeks of age. If you use them after that, I say that in my personal opinion, if you use them between six weeks and six months of age, you still have a pretty good chance to make a baby with type 1 who is not going to be able to hold their head or seat or use their arms to now being able to hold their head, sit up, and use their arms pretty well. I cannot promise they are going to walk, you know, for a type 1. I can't just think we promise that and I always tell the family these are the first goals that we're going to try to get are sitting, holding their head and using their arms because functionally obviously you're talking that's a completely different patient. If you are treating patients after six months, I think the, the prognosis is more, it's more difficult to, to figure out. You know, it depends how affected is the patient by that point because by six months a baby with type 1 is pretty weak already. So it depends. And then for type 2s, type 2s are the ones that can seat, um, that we call the seaters. The main prognosis for them and the main goal objective for therapy is to keep their arm function, to being able to use both arms, you know, reach above their shoulders, being able to do their activities of daily living, brushing their teeth, doing their stuff by themselves, and keeping their body, also their trunk, more stable without not much of of the scoliosis and the weakness that they will develop. Because a type 2, even though they can sit and use their arms, with time they will lose that ability. So when they're in their 20s, 30s, they cannot use their arms much. So we're trying to conserve that and to keep that function. And for a type 3, these are the walkers, my goal is always to not lose ambulation. Because these patients, even though they can walk, they will lose ambulation. Most of them will stop walking. So our goal is to try to keep them ambulating and obviously don't develop the other complications you're going to get once you're sitting in a wheelchair. And then to end the episode today, do you have any advice for our listeners while they care for newborns? I think that uh, my advice and something that I didn't mention was the creatinine kinase. And it's something that I always ask everybody to order one. Creatinine kinase in these patients may be normal, but maybe also minimally elevated. So for us, the number in our head is up to 300 is normal. But if you have a patient with 350, 400, 500, think about SMA. 
because it could be one of those patients. If you have a patient with low muscle tone, with weakness, with difficulties breathing, and with a pretty normal-looking face, think about SMA. Even if you get some reflexes, think about SMA and send the testing. Because, again, it's free. We don't have to get a pre-authorization for genetic testing through insurance. We just can send it right away. So why not sending it and changing pretty much changing the life of that patient, changing the outcome completely. Thanks again for joining us today, Dr. Castro. Thank you so much for the invitation. And please contact us. I'm always open to talk to anybody. If anybody has any doubt about this, I love what I do. This is my passion. And if I can help, um, I'll be more than happy. Thanks for listening to Newborn News. We hope you join us next time. If you like what you hear, make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. If you have questions, comments, feedback, or suggestions for future episodes, please email me at newbornnews at utsouthwestern.edu. As a reminder, this content is educational and is not meant to be used as medical advice. Views or opinions expressed in this podcast are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the university.